The following podcast contains advertisements. If you prefer a podcast without advertisements, you can sign up for our ad-free version at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. You'll get rid of the ads and we'll be very grateful. People are more likely to behave in an uncivil manner under their real names than they are under their pseudonyms. And conversely, there are studies that find that the higher quality comments are those that are posted pseudonymously because they're just more candid. I'm Quincia Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 14th, 2021. Today, we're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the online information ecosystem. Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen's recent testimony before Congress has set in motion a renewed cycle of outrage over the company's practices, and a renewed round of discussion around what, if anything, Congress should do to rein Facebook in. But how workable are these proposals, really? This week on the show, Evelyn Duick and I spoke with Jeff Kosseff, an associate professor of cybersecurity law at the United States Naval Academy, and the guy who has literally written not just the book on this, but two of them. He's the author of The 26 Words That Created the Internet, a book about Section 230. And he has another book coming out next year about First Amendment protections for anonymous speech, titled The United States of Anonymous. So Jeff is very well positioned to evaluate recent suggestions that Facebook should, for example, limit the ability of young people to create what users call finstas, a second secret Instagram account for a close circle of friends, or Haugen's suggestion that the government should regulate how Facebook amplifies certain content through its algorithms. Jeff walked us through the importance of online anonymity, the danger of skipping past the First Amendment when proposing tech reforms, and why he thinks that Section 230 reform has become unavoidable even if that reform might not make any legal or policy sense. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 14th. Finstas, Falsehoods, and the First Amendment. Jeff, so good to have you on. It's kind of remarkable that we haven't had you on the show before, given you're literally the guy that wrote the book on Section 230, which tends to come up a little bit in this space. But naturally, when we get a legal expert on this show to discuss such a topical and and complex regulatory area that's plagued with trade-offs, there's an obvious question that we just have to start with. What is Finster, and do you commit right now on this podcast to ending it? I can end it for me personally in that uh, I don't have a Finsta. I've never had a Finsta. I don't want a Finsta. So Finsta is basically, uh, it's slang for fake Instagram, uh, often most commonly referring to a teenager or young young adults uh, second Instagram account that is not operated under their real name and is known only to a select group of people. Oftentimes they're not their parents, but a group of friends uh, where they can communicate more candidly than they would under their Rinsta or their real Instagram, which uses their real name. So to be serious for a second, so obviously for listeners who haven't keyed on, the reason we're asking about Finsta is that at a congressional hearing a week or so ago with Facebook's head of global safety, uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal asked whether Facebook would commit to ending Finsta. 
which everyone got a, a good laugh out of it, I think even including the senator in a uh, Twitter post later in the day. But you wrote an article in Slate about why we should take that question, or at least the implication behind the question, if not the actual question itself, seriously. So why? Why is it more than just a flub in your view? Yeah, so and I, I should give the caveat, I'm speaking on my own behalf, not the DOD or the Naval Academy. Um, and what, what I would say is when, when you watch the whole hearing and the earlier exchanges, you get the sense that Senator Blumenthal actually does know what Finst is, uh, or at least he alluded to what it was in his questions before the moment that went viral. And that's really more concerning to me than if he didn't know what FinSTA is. <laughs> because when you say, will you commit to ending FinSTA? I don't know how you do that without committing to adopt and really stringently enforce a real name policy, meaning that people can't communicate pseudonymously on your platform. And I think uh, even if you're just limiting this for teenagers, I think there's unfortunately this nefarious implication that if you're not using your real identity, that you're somehow doing something bad or you're trying to hide things. And, and it really gets to an issue that Facebook on the Facebook, Facebook platform has really gotten a lot of criticism for, for really since it was developed, which is uh, its requirement that people have real names. I mean, this has been something where they've justified it saying, you know, that we want to have authentic conversations and protect people's safety. But what we've found over the years is that really it has disproportionately harmed some of the most marginalized groups that do not have the luxury of being able to speak under their legal name. It wasn't just this hearing. It's been a lot of the debate that we've been having about online harms where people might say, okay, let's not look at 230, which I say, okay, that, that that's good. We're on the right track. And then they say, Let, let's go after anonymity because that's bad. And I worry that it is a bit short-sighted to suddenly blame anonymous and pseudonymous speech for, for the harms that are online when it really goes so much deeper. Okay. So as we mentioned at the top, you've written a book about Section 230, which we will come back to, but now coming out next year, you've written a book about anonymity. And since your book about Section 230 came out, the law has been taking a severe beating and and people talk about repealing or significantly reforming it all the time. Now, correlation does not equal causation, of course, but uh, this is not a great look, Jeff. Are you worried about what will happen to anonymity, uh, that lawmakers will try and, and get rid of it after after your book? And if so, is that why you wrote the book? I mean, what you just said implies no, that you do see uh, some benefits to anonymity, and this isn't going to be a crusade against it. And so I wonder if you could just spell out a little bit more what you see as those benefits and why you think anonymity online is something important to preserve. Yeah, so I, I started writing the anonymity book really as I was finishing the Section 230 book, largely because one of the big defenses of Section 230 or the, the way that Section 230 defenders explain the justifications is that Section 230 says you can sue the poster, but not the platform. And I'm aware of, and I've actually had worked on some cases where that's not necessarily the case because either the poster is using someone else's internet connection or they're using Tor or VPN, or 
they get sued and their information might be identifiable, but the courts set a very high standard under the First Amendment before they'll allow a plaintiff to subpoena a poster's identifying information. And that really got me intrigued of why, why do the courts have this? Because discovery is so common uh, and you can get so much in discovery. Why, why did the courts set this very high bar, at least in some types of cases, when plaintiffs are trying to identify uh, who allegedly defamed them or leaked trade secrets. So I actually went into the project much more neutral, if not pessimistic, about anonymity than I was at the end of the project, because what I did was I traced the history of why we have this First Amendment right to anonymity. That's not absolute, but it's very strong, and it's stronger than most other places in the world. And so I mean, I started looking at really the foundational anonymous and pseudonymous speech in the United States, things like Common Sense that Thomas Paine wrote anonymously, the Federalist Papers, the letters from the farmer in Pennsylvania. And interestingly enough, the person who probably has best explained why our nation's history really relied so heavily on anonymous speech was Clarence Thomas in some opinions that he would write or concurrences, where he actually adopted a stronger view on the right to anonymous speech than the liberal justices. And he is an originalist, says, you know, you look at what, what did freedom of the press and freedom of speech mean at the time of founding, because that's what, what originalists do. And he said, well, this means uh, at, at the time, so much of our really important political writing was done anonymously. So that had to be what it meant. So I looked at court cases throughout, really starting in the 1950s, um, throughout the early 2000s, where the Supreme Court repeatedly justified protections for both anonymous speech and association. And uh, one of the things that really made me, as I looked at these cases and the entire body of cases, I saw time and again, uh, it protected people who would not otherwise be able to speak with their real names. The foundational case was in sort of post-Brown versus Board of Education, Alabama, you had Alabama state officials who basically wanted to shut down and persecute NAACP members in Alabama. So they found that the local chapter had not been complying with the corporation's registration requirement. Uh, rather than just get, get them to fill out the form, the state officials, uh, the attorney general who was a segregationist, he sued the NAACP to get them shut down. But then, uh, then on top of that, as part of the discovery in the lawsuit, tried to obtain the membership lists for all of the members of the NAACP. In Alabama. And you would understand why in the 1950s in Alabama, NAACP members would not want to be publicly identified to the government. And it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court unanimously says that the First Amendment protects this right to associate anonymously. And the court would continue to find these really strong rights, for example, in laws that required uh, handbills and political pamphlets to have the name of the author on them. So there are some trade-offs. Um, interestingly, I, I look at some cases where, for example, there are anti-mask laws that say uh, you can't wear something to conceal your face 
in a public setting. Uh, and these were, many of them were adopted to reduce the number of Ku Klux Klan rallies uh, throughout the South as well as the Midwest. Some judges struck these down and said this violates the same right to anonymous speech. Uh, there was a law in New York, and I, this was one of the most fascinating things I found when I was researching it. The Ku Klux Klan wanted to rally. This was in 1999, and they challenged New York's anti-mask law in New York City. And uh, I was able to get all of the court filings, and the transcripts are really interesting. And I'm looking through the briefs, and I see that the National Action Network, which is Al Sharpton's group, filed an amicus brief. And I my initial reaction was, well, they probably don't want the Ku Klux Klan to be holding a rally in New York City. But then I read that it's actually in support of the Ku Klux Klan. And what the National Action Network justified this as, is they said, you know, we detest everything that the Klan stands for, but they have a right to be anonymous. And if the government is able to start restricting their free speech rights, then they could restrict ours as well. And I found that really powerful and really intellectually honest assessment of it. Now, how it applies to the internet, uh, interestingly, when you're talking about the power dynamics, uh, this really started to arise in the late 1990s, where you had a different internet, but you did have user-generated content. Section 230 was in place, so you couldn't sue the platforms where it was being posted. And the most contentious battleground for anonymous speech was something that I think still exists, but in a different form called Yahoo Finance. And this was on Yahoo. They had a bulletin board for every publicly traded company. And you would have employees of these companies, mostly employees, sometimes investors or other people would post pretty nasty things about the management. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it was not flattering. And you, you might think that's not a big deal, but at the time, the executives of these companies were not really used to public criticism. Uh, they Maybe a newspaper reporter would write something about them, but they weren't used to these lowly employees going on into a public forum and criticizing them. So what they started doing was trying to identify which employees were doing this for the sole purpose of firing them. And I mean, there were a lot of these lawsuits. And so what they would do is sue John Doe defendants. And they would then use the subpoena process to try to unmask them. So they'd subpoena Yahoo for the IP address or any email address that the person might have provided when registering. And then they'd usually have to issue a second subpoena to the ISP associated with the IP address or the email account. But early on, they were able to easily use the process because Yahoo wasn't notifying the people so they couldn't challenge it. This started to change and you eventually had the court step in and say, no, you've got to provide notice. And also you have to have a, a substantial amount of evidence to be able to unmask someone basically to protect this right to anonymous speech that the Supreme Court has recognized. And again, it's something where you look at really these, these power dynamics where uh, suddenly, the ability to speak anonymously online provides people who never would have had this power before. Now, obviously, there's downsides to anonymous speech. I look at cases of persistent harassment. I look at the use of Tor 
in some high profile cases like um, the playpen case where child sex abuse material was distributed and, for, and the FBI was able to circumvent the protections to identify people. But what, what I find in a lot of these cases, especially the persistent harassment cases, is that it's not as simple as being able to blame anonymity. That anonymity is part of it. And I look at some really devastating, terrible cases in the book. But when you look in their case files and you see, oh, well, they've been doing this since middle school uh, and not just on the internet, but they were identified as, you know, harassing classmates and they were doing all sorts of stuff right in public view. The problem goes deeper than anonymity. So anonymity is definitely a tool that can be used to perpetuate harms. That's without a doubt. But I, I think it's like with a, a lot of these online speech issues right now, it's easy to just sort of go after one element without looking at the underlying problem and also without looking at all of the benefits that anonymous speech provides. So you've touched on a, a number of the the things that I want to ask you about here, but I do want to drill down into it. So I think you've you've set out really nicely how the common way people often think about anonymity is is maybe misleading. I think we have this conception that, you know, anonymous speech is useful when people want to be a jerk. Um, and not endure the ramifications of being a jerk. But you've just described a lot of different motivations that people may have for wanting to be anonymous from, you know, supporting a group that is advocating for the rights of Black people in the segregated South or uh, marching as part of the KKK. So can you talk about the the different specific motivations you identify as what is driving people to be anonymous? Because one of the really interesting things about this book you have coming out is that you sort of go point by point and kind of provide a taxonomy of different motivations for anonymity. Yeah, yeah. And there really are, there, there are a number. And I mean, I, I tried to break down and I, I kind of used the example of the first case study in my book is of Junius, who basically was incredibly influential in uh, criticizing the king, uh, taking out a prime minister. So, and he was able to disguise his identity pretty much to this day. Some people think they know they've, they've identified the person who was uh, behind the writings, but uh, Junius took a lot of really operational security <laughs> measures to have people rewrite his handwriting uh, and so forth. But what I took out of that, and this is kind of based on what he and other people have said, were six main motivations. So the first is a legal motivation. So, I mean, at the time, I mean, Junius very well could have been executed for what what he was for what he was writing, or imprisoned, uh, and he also could have faced civil liability. In fact, the publisher of the newspaper that printed Junius's letters actually went to trial for seditious libel, but the jury did not find him guilty. And, and that really carries over to today. Um, if you're anonymous and you're criticizing your employer you very well could face liability for defamation. You also could face liability if you signed a confidentiality agreement. That actually came up quite a bit in a number of the anonymity cases. Um, the second is safety. So this could be seen in the NAACP cases in particular. The NAACP members actually provided tremendous amount of evidence 
of the harassment that they experienced when they were publicly associated with the NAACP. So this isn't a hypothetical. It's especially important when you're trying to convey a viewpoint that might not be terribly popular at the time. The third is the economic motivation. So this this applies particularly in the cases that I talked about with Yahoo Finance and frankly, more recently with a site like Glassdoor, which actually has fought a number of subpoenas for posters' information when they post about employers. Uh, you very well could, you'll, you'll definitely lose your job. You uh, likely will have a difficult time finding a new job. The fourth motivation I think about is privacy motivation, and I try to distinguish between privacy and anonymity. So, I mean, anonymity is being able to control the identity associated with information, and privacy is the information itself. But when you are controlling the identity, that actually helps to protect privacy. So, I mean, Junius may have been a public figure, may not have been, but Junius was able to distance his identity from, from the writings of Junius. And that helped to build some privacy. I actually, in my conclusion, I write about a website that my wife and I have actually used a lot, a site called DC Urban Moms and Dads, which is fully anonymous. Uh, And it's, uh, it gives you insight into uh, the incredibly type A personalities of people who live in the Washington DC area. It's also incredibly helpful and I uh, talk with the people who run the website and they really intentionally set it up to be anonymous so people could, as they describe it, give tough love. And if you have an idea about anything in life, you put it out there and people are very honest and people very often reveal pretty private information that would be difficult to imagine them just walking up to a stranger or even their friends and talking about Uh, The fifth, I call the speech motivation. And this is something that Thomas Paine wrote about when when he was writing anonymously for Common Sense. Uh, And he he basically said, you know, I want you to focus on my arguments. Uh, Alexander Hamilton writing the Federalist Papers and Federalist Number One essentially said the same thing. There's also this idea that the pseudonym for pseudonymous speech, the pseudonym that's chosen, could help give effect to the speech. So Publius is uh, a Roman ruler from 500 BC, and that basically helps set a different portrayal of who's speaking than if you're just saying it's Hamilton, Madison, and Jay. Uh, And the sixth that I talked about is the power motivation. So basically uh, being able to give power to people who otherwise would not have it. This is something that uh, Dana Boyd, a researcher at NYU and Microsoft, has really documented well. Uh, Dana has studied teenagers' use of social media for a very long time and found that teenagers of color disproportionately rely on pseudonymous accounts when communicating online. And I think that that makes sense when you look at how anonymous speech has been employed over the years. Now, I mean, mean, there's always this attractive argument to make where you just say, yeah, but there's bad anonymous speech. So if you want to go after it, you just ban anonymity. And uh, Jillian York at EFF, she has labeled these proposals the white man's gambit. 
Um, because what Jillian says is, you know, this is a really easy proposal to be able to make when you have the luxury of being able to make it. <laughs> but, but many people don't. So as you refer to in the book, one of the key cultural icons of the internet is the New Yorker cartoon uh, with the caption, uh, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. And I mean, the the cartoon is somewhat ambiguous as to whether that's a, a good thing. This actually only occurred to me recently in thinking about it, that it was uh, kind of a Rorschach test because I had thought it was like ambiguously positive. I mean, unambiguously positive. I like, great, finally dogs get to speak up, but I can see how you might take um, the opposite view. And I think lawmakers uh, very often tend to take the opposite view. And so every so often a legislature somewhere will focus on the bots and trolls and think that the answer to everything that's wrong online uh, is to ban anonymity. And uh, here I have to give a shout out and an apology uh, for Australia being the latest carrier of this baton. Um, do, you, do you apologize for everything from Australia? I do. It's, <laughs> you know, it's a perpetual theme of this podcast. Tech policy is not our strong point, apparently. Great at beaches, uh, not so great at tech policy. And so I, I, I'll give a quote from Prime Minister Scott Morrison over the weekend, just because I think it's an indicative of you know, many politicians' statements in this area quite often. So uh, social media has become a coward's palace where people can go on there, not say who they are and destroy people's lives and say the most foul and offensive things to people and do so with impunity. They should have to identify who they are and the companies. If they're not going to say who they are, well, they're not a platform anymore. They're a publisher and oh, no. threatens to look at I know it's like platform regulation ad libs, isn't it? Just like throwing in a bunch of words. And so I'm curious to sort of get your thoughts on what such a leg- legislative proposal, which again, comes up everywhere. Um, it's been floated in the States, it's been floated in the UK and, and many other places. How that would work out in practice, if one of these proposals made it through, what do you think platforms would do? How would the internet change? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it comes up that there's actually a draft bill in the House. Uh, there's a big package of legislation that the Republicans have proposed. And one of them just requires social media to verify the identity. They don't, it, it's not very specific as to whether the proposal is just to verify the identity or to also make people publicly post under the identity. I'm concerned with both of them because. I, I don't know exactly how you verify the identity of everyone. I don't know if you require um, a credit card, which would obviously exclude a number of people uh, or scan of a government ID. But once you have that, how long do you retain it for? And th- that that's concerning. It's more concerning to require people to post under their real names. I think either of them would face substantial uh, First Amendment problems. I, there, there have been a few kind of early internet cases in the late '90s when things like this have been proposed, and the courts have just said, "No, you can't do this. It's unconstitutional." But I will say that there are some cases where, because the right to anonymous speech is not absolute, and there there are some cases that are troubling, as not not really as much on the mainstream platforms, but on certain platforms that make a policy both of not taking anything down and also not logging IP addresses, which they don't have to do. And so, I mean, that that's susceptible to abuse because let's say that someone actually does have a viable defamation claim that would survive a summary judgment motion and all the other requirements under the First Amendment test 
are satisfied, there's then a problem that you still might not be able to identify the person. And I mean, you may never be able to because they might be using a VPN or Tor or they might be at a coffee shop. But there, there are at least ways to address that issue without sort of compromising all of the First Amendment protections. So, I mean, I think uh, probably the most thoughtful proposal on this is Danielle Citron. Uh, not surprisingly, she has a thoughtful proposal on something which she proposed in 2009, which was to say, and this gets to Section 230, where she says, okay, if you're going to receive Section 230 protections, you have to log IP addresses. Uh, and that got some pushback. And it was actually a really interesting academic debate that, that I write about in the book. But that seems to me like that would still be able to preserve the First Amendment protections because you would, to subpoena the information, you would still need to probably go to two sources and you'd have to satisfy all of the standards and there would be no name required, but it also would reduce the the number of times when someone just has no remedy at all. Because already if someone's the subject, the subject of really persistent harassment, it's already a huge burden on them to have to file a lawsuit and possibly get face more harassment because they filed a lawsuit. So that, I mean, that, that's something that I think is worth considering. I think that, I think the first amendment equities would probably, probably, it's not clear how courts would rule on that, but I think that's at least a thoughtful proposal for, uh, for considering this rather than say, you've got to give your name and you've got to post under your real name. I think the outcome of that would be that you see that the people most frequently posting are the people who have the luxury of being able to do that. I mean, I'm I'm a tenured professor. I have the luxury of being able to, and, I, and I'm a white man. I, I I have all the luxuries in the world of being able to post under my real name. But there's a whole lot of people who do not have that luxury. And if you start saying you have to post under your real name, uh, and that's it, that's pretty scary. And I think that would chill a lot of speech. The that that just people can't take that risk. So one of the counter arguments that you often hear right now against sort of alarm over the Internet's effects is that we're in the middle of a moral panic, which is a sociological concept that sort of defines a, a widespread societal belief, often based on not very much that something has gone terribly wrong and we need to you know, protect our children from some sort of undefined menace. So the satanic panic in the 1980s is a classic example. I think I'd, I'd also define the panic in the late 1990s over children accessing pornography online, which, as you write in your first book, which we will talk about in a minute, is uh, in a roundabout way sort of led to the creation of Section 230. And in reading about the response to Senator Blumenthal's comments, I saw some suggestion that, you know, maybe now we're in the middle of a new moral panic around, you know, the dangers of anonymity, how the Internet is, you know, affecting children. Do you think that's right? Is there a moral panic? I mean, you've written this this very careful, detailed account of anonymity, and then you also see politicians out there saying, you know, this is a terrible problem and it's destroying our children. Is that diagnosis accurate? I think it is. I, I think that I and I, I think it's probably not just limited to anonymity. I think that it's uh, it also goes into uh, the misinformation <laughs> debate in general. Um, that you you know all all of a sudden this is the first time that we've ever been that, that we've ever encountered lies before, <laughs> and and, we, and this is the reason that we've got to regulate. 
online speech and uh, kind of yada yada yadding through the First Amendment. That's what it kind of kind of feels like we're doing with a lot of these things. But I, I do think, and I mean, what I, I actually did not even intend this with the book, but what I'm hoping to do is to provide maybe a more nuanced portrait of why we protect anonymity. That it's not just this accident, and it's not just something. And yeah, it, it protects bad people, but I mean. There are some bad people who speak anonymously online. There's actually a lot of bad people who speak under their real names online. And the beauty of the First Amendment is that we don't make those moral judgments in restricting people's ability to speak. And I, I feel like we're kind of forgetting that. And there's, there are studies that I cite in the book where they actually find that people are more likely to behave in an uncivil manner under their real names than they are under their pseudonyms. And conversely, there are studies that find that the higher quality comments are those that are posted pseudonymously because they're just more candid. And I, I think that gets lost when you just sort of say, oh yeah, there, there's this one case of bad anonymous speech. So that means all anonymous speech is bad. And I, I'm hoping we don't go too far down that road, because I, I really think that uh, the result would be that the internet would, frankly, be uh, even more so available to the privileged and less available uh, to people who have good reason for not posting under their real names. Okay, so we can't avoid it any longer. We're going to have to ask the Section 230 guy about Section 230. Uh, you did just bring it up squarely, so let's do it. Section 230 is obviously the statute, I think, as all of our listeners at this point probably know, the uh, statute that shields platform from civil liability for material posted by third parties. And the hot topic right now is um, it's been back in the, the news again in the headlines because Facebook whistleblower uh, Frances Haugen has some proposals for Section 230 reform, which she's, she's leaned into. And you and friend of the pod, Daphne Keller, wrote about it in the, the Washington Post recently. And I think there's two things that you picked up there. And the one that you just sort of were talking about is the misinformation debate. And, you know, prominently, of course, the pandemic is a focal point for a lot of this debate. So for Democrats, this is a massive thing that's that's wrong with the internet right now. Uh, President Biden said Facebook was killing people because of vaccine misinformation. Democrats have been demanding platforms remove the so-called disinformation dozen who are uh, allegedly responsible for most vaccine misinformation online. Your Washington Post op-ed walked through the First Amendment cases on regulating health misinformation, and some of them were pretty hard to read about. But I was wondering if you could give us a sort of a picture of what those cases say and how they're relevant to today's debate. Yeah, so this is actually the topic of the book that I've started writing over the past few months now that the anonymity book is done and this is about you gotta stop writing books jeff this is like <laughs> i can't read that many books let alone write them this is insane <laughs> well the good, the good thing is this is about the first amendment so uh by 2023 yeah so yeah what, what i'm doing is looking at to what extent does the first amendment protect false speech and why does it and uh rather than say we should roll back these protections looking at other ways basically based on what's available as well as what do the theories that 
initially led to these protections suggest that we do. And I look at obviously a lot of defamation cases, uh, which are pretty unique in that it's a harm to an individual and there's a very high standard. I look at why those standards were set, but a lot of the cases I look at are the less covered cases uh, involving things, lies or false speech or misleading speech outside of defamation. And I talk about a few of them in, in the piece that Daphne and I wrote, and it's not impossible, but it is very, very difficult to convince a court to uh, hold a publisher or a distributor liable for false speech outside of the defamation context. There, there are some cases where, where it has worked. Typically that involves like aeronautical maps that might have an error in them because there's a they're sold as a product and so they can face products liability claims. But there are some really tragic cases. The case that uh, we read about most in depth is a case where two people in 1988 on New Year's Day were gathering wild mushrooms and they say they relied on a book called The Encyclopedia of Mushrooms and they found a mushroom and they cooked it ate it and they both got so sick they required liver transplants because it was a death cap and the the really one of the most deadly types of mushrooms so they sued the publisher for a variety of claims including negligence and product liability and then it goes up to the ninth circuit and they say you know we're the the first amendment counsels against us creating a duty for a publisher to investigate whether what they're publishing is accurate. And I mean, this has happened in so many cases, um, both for health, there are a number of really terrible cases involving diet books that just have totally far out plans for how, how to lose weight and people get really sick. One person died. And again, the publishers don't have duties. Uh, outside of the health context, there are a number of financial cases where people basically get inaccurate stock information from a news service or a ticker service and they lose a lot of money. And the courts still say, you know, we're, we're not imposing speech accuracy requirements. And what I do more is look at the reasoning behind this. And I mean, there, there are a few different lines of thought. One is, you know, the whole marketplace of ideas that, uh, I mean, the best ideas will rise to the top. That It's not a terribly satisfying <laughs> response, especially in, in 2021, when you have a contingent of people who believe that vaccines have microchips in them and so forth. But that, that's at least part of it. But what, I mean, I think there are other rationales that I think are being lost, including, and I, I mean, they, it, it's not a terribly kind thing to say, but th this idea of personal responsibility on the consumers of the information. I mean, this is, on, this is a theme that the judges in some cases very bluntly say, you know, if, if you're going to rely on a diet book or something that, and it seems really risky, well, it perhaps is not necessarily just to be blamed on the publisher. And also an, an idea that, you know, people can seek out better sources of information. So there, there are a lot of different threads behind this, but I mean, overall, it's just very difficult to outside of defamation or things like false advertising. But uh, unless there's already sort of a created exception, the courts are not 
very uh, eager to start creating new carve-outs to First Amendment protections for false speech. And I mean, that can be seen in the um, 2012 Alvarez case where the Supreme Court, uh, this involved someone who lied about receiving a military honor. And uh, the Supreme Court said, you know, we're not going to say that all false, the false speech is categorically exempt from the First Amendment. There are some things that are, but you have to have more than just saying that it's a lie. And interestingly, I think uh, one of, so a judge who has since resigned from the Ninth Circuit, uh, because the case came out of the Ninth Circuit, and um, Judge Kaczynski, who resigned after a number of uh, sexual misconduct claims, he actually wrote a concurrence in the denial of Anbach rehearing, where he actually went through how lies are part of everyday life. And I, I think the Supreme Court didn't quite say that, but it's kind of implicit. Uh, what Justice Kennedy said is, you know, we don't have a ministry of truth in the United States. And so I think the, that rather than, I, I agree that misinformation is harmful, but I think there's also good reason to have the First Amendment protections. I mean, how it ties to 230, I would point to a proposal from earlier this year from uh, Senator Klobuchar. And I mean, again, I'm still in my personal capacity, not on behalf of the Naval Academy. Her, her proposal, incredibly well-intentioned, is to say, okay, during a public health emergency, an online service provider does not receive Section 230 protections for any health misinformation that it algorithmically promotes unless it's done through a neutral method. Now, that, that all sounds reasonable because, you know, we don't want health misinformation. But you then look at the definition. How do we figure out what's health misinformation? Well, the HHS secretary, in consultation with other officials that the secretary deems appropriate, issues guidance as to what health misinformation is. And that terrifies me <laughs> uh, that when we're talking about a ministry of truth uh, to give one executive branch official the authority to say what is health misinformation and therefore does not receive the same protection as other speech that influences what speech people see. And even if you agree with whomever is currently the HHS secretary, um, there might be someone in four years who you don't agree with. And that's the whole point of the First Amendment. And I worry that we're having these reactionary responses to very real problems. And we're kind of, again, yada, yada, yadding through <laughs> the First Amendment analysis of this. And I, I worry, I, I try to remind people that once you compromise the First Amendment, it's hard to get back. You, you've given that up. And uh, so, I mean, I think that proposal, I, I don't think a court would allow it, but I also still worry that it's, it's something that we're actually thinking about as something that would actually meaningfully help the situation. So you, you mentioned uh, proposals to address 230 that involve amplification. And I wanted to ask you more about that because in in your op-ed with, with Stephanie Keller in the Washington Post, you did write about this idea that Francis Haugen put forward that perhaps there should be some kind of restrictions on how platforms amplify content using algorithmic ranking. And you point out that these, these calls generally tend to involve some kind of a, a carve-out in Section 230 for 
algorithmic ranking for sort of boosting and amplification. You and Daphne are actually pretty critical of that proposal because of, once again, our pesky old friend, the First Amendment. Can you walk us through what your criticism is? So, so I think part of the problem is you then kind of reverse the order of what we were just talking about. And let's say that you did say, um, you know, Section 230 does not apply to content or to claims from algorithmic promotion. Uh, you still need an underlying claim. And for all the reasons we talked about with courts not really imposing new duties for misinformation or even a lot of really harmful information, uh, there's a lot of things where I don't think it would matter. It would matter for something like defamation. But I think a lot of what we're talking about here is not defamation. A lot of what we're talking about are the sort of more broader uh, societal harms. So that's one thing. I, I think the other is, is uh, that what the courts have repeatedly found is that uh, restricting the distribution of speech is a restriction on the speech. So there's kind of a side debate about whether algorithms are speech, but that's not really the issue here. It's basically the courts saying, you know, if you make it harder to distribute speech or if you say how you could distribute speech, that in itself is a speech restriction. And another thing is less of a legal issue and more of a policy issue that I think really is worthy of debate, which is, I mean, what are the positive roles that algorithms play? And I mean, I I hate to even say that because we are in such a frenzy about what Facebook is doing. But I mean, I first note, I mean, as as, uh, Evelyn has uh, very often pointed out that the internet is not just Facebook. (laughs) <laughs> there are there are a few other platforms on the internet, and how do they use algorithms? And I mean, do do we want to go back to just full reverse chronological? Uh, could you just ban promotion? How do you define that? Does it apply to all content neutrally? Uh, I mean, there there are so many questions. So I mean, I, I'm not totally ruling out something that looks at at algorithmic promotion. I I just think that we haven't completely identified what the issue is and really what the impacts would be of of making this change. I mean, what we've seen in things like FOSTA is that if you amend Section 230, the platforms will very quickly change because they don't want to take on this really unknown amount of liability. And Jeff, before you go further, can you just describe what FOSTA is for listeners who aren't familiar? Yeah, so FOSTA is uh, a law that it was signed into law in 2018, and it was to address an issue that primarily involving a site that's now offline called Backpage, which was kind of a classified ad section that was accused of uh, being a place where both, and I think it's important to distinguish this, there were a lot of advertisements for sex workers and also sex traffickers used it. And I feel, and the case that really got the most attention, it went up to the First Circuit. There were three women who sued for rape that had happened when they were teenagers, um, where they were trafficked on Backpage. Uh, And the case file for that is one of the most devastating cases that I that I've read and I've read a lot of really awful cases um their stories and what happened to them 
but but they they sued Backpage and they and they sued under a number of theories and the First Circuit. I don't have the opinion in front of me, but I think the first line of of it was something like "This is a very hard case" or something like that because they knew you know this is this is awful what we're going to do, but we're going to find that Section Two Thirty says that Backpage is protected. That got attention. There was a documentary made about uh, sex trafficking victims in Backpage, and it got bipartisan support. I testified in the House hearing about a related, actually not about any specific bill. And I actually, probably one of the things I regret the most was um, I urged a more narrow approach to go after sites that intentionally, intentionally run sex trafficking ads. And I really regret, and I explained the chilling effect, and I got a lot of pushback for that, but I tried to strike a middle ground. I regret not sounding even more of a cautionary note because the result was, I mean, this is something where the tech companies got involved and then they did not have a very good response to it at first. And the result is just a mess. I've talked with many lawyers, including uh, lawyers who specialize in criminal defense saying, you know, how do you interpret this? Uh, They created new, new, new criminal liability. They... But, but it's not clear whether some of it is subject to Section 230 or not. Um, there's a bunch of different standards of knowledge on top of one another. And what you ended up having were pretty immediate effects of things like Craigslist, just removing its personals ad section, like even a day before it was signed into law. They said, you know, we just can't take the risk on this. But I think the big failure of FOSTA is the impact that it had on sex workers and it's made life far more dangerous for them because it's driven so many things offline. And um, all the reports so far have documented, you know, that this is not safer, but we, we reacted to this one really tragic case. And I, I'll admit I reacted to it. And I think with some hindsight and with seeing how this has worked out, I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear that what, what Congress did has not improved anything, and it, it, it's made life dangerous for a lot more people. So I think you're very fair to point out that a lot of these debates tend to be First Amendment, yada, 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 and don't really reckon with the very real obstacles that the First Amendment would be to many of the proposed reforms. Uh, at the same time, I think on the flip side, the First Amendment can often be used to just really shut down debate in this area um, and say, well, you can't do anything because of the First Amendment. But as you've just been talking about, you know, there are very many reasons why we might might want to be nuanced about this. It is hard to look at the current situation and go, this is the best possible world. You were talking before that, you know, you hadn't closed your mind to proposals that were dealing with amplification and and things like that. So I'm curious about what your positive agenda might be. You know, we've talked a lot about why other proposals might be impractical or unconstitutional. um, But, you know, what kinds of reforms would you be most interested in seeing in this space right now? Yeah, so the biggest concern that I have right now, and this comes from, I mean, now it's been going on gosh, almost three years now, um, this, this debate. I mean, I've met with dozens of congressional staffers and members of Congress, really from all sides of the aisle. And I mean, I will say there's, just as a side note, 
uh, there's kind of this myth that, you know, Congress does not understand technology, at least the people who I'm meeting with, that's not the case at all. They, they might have viewpoints I disagree with, but I've not met anyone who's like, oh, what does the internet look like? What, what, what's, what, what's Facebook? That, that's not, it, it's a useful media narrative, but I don't think it's the case. But when I meet with them, I'm having, really, it's two completely different conversations depending on who I'm meeting with. I mean, there's a lot of people who are really concerned about the harms and I mean, that, the harmful content. And I think that that's probably where I personally am more concerned about. But I meet with an equal number of people who think the platforms are too heavy handed and they need to take a more hands off approach and that they're biased against certain political viewpoints. And so, so I mean, we're, we're trying to find a solution and I have no idea what problem we're trying to solve. There's a lot of different problems. But if you tell me this is the problem that we need to solve, then I could give specific solutions. But I don't see any effective way to reconcile these two very different visions of the role the platforms play. And I, I worry that there's such a rush to pass something that there's going to be some monstrous omnibus bill that's passed like on December 23rd. Uh, <laughs> that's like 500 page amendment, section 230, that tries to incorporate everyone's concerns and that just just makes makes everything unworkable. And so, I mean, I, I'd like to first see a better consensus. For two years, I've been proposing um, having something like the Cyber Solarium Commission, but for platform moderation, where you have as nonpartisan as you could get experts who gather facts and make recommendations to Congress, the Cyber Solarium Commission, obviously dealing with perhaps a slightly less controversial topic, they still were able to get more than 25 of their recommendations signed into law, rather than, I, I think, having something with credibility and fact-based, uh, which doesn't just hypothetically guess that, you know, this is what the harms are, these are the people who are being censored. Um, get, actually gathering empirical data would be a really great step. Something, I mean, again, I, I said that my, at least sort of throughout my work, I'm more sympathetic to the side that says there are harms that that need to be addressed. Um, my biggest concerns are, and I, I think Kashmir Hill in the New York Times, I guess it was sometime earlier this year, really documented how some of the sites that basically won't take material down, even uh, material that might be adjudicated defamatory, um, and the harm that that could have on people who are the targets of persistent harassment. That's frankly my bigger concern than than anything else are the the use of Section 230. Uh, and mo most platforms don't do this, but the, sort of, there, there are some bad actor platforms. We have a case from the California Supreme Court from a few years ago that I kind of, this is where I part ways with a lot of uh, Section 230 supporters, uh, I think was perhaps not correctly decided. Uh, this was a case where there was a Yelp review. Uh, the subject of the Yelp review sued the poster and not Yelp, obviously, because of Section 230. The poster did not show up in court, so they got a default judgment. But part of the default judgment was a takedown order for Yelp to take down the material. And uh, Yelp 
challenged this and it went up to the California Supreme Court and in a very divided opinion, the California Supreme Court said Section 230 does not require Yelp to abide by this takedown order. And I, I see all the rationales. There was a dissent, a concurrence, and a plurality, and all of them were really compelling. And I worry normatively whether this is the right approach. Uh, there, there are a lot of concerns, for example, about forged court orders, which uh, Eugene Bollock has done a really good job documenting. There are also concerns about, you know, will courts, if no one shows up uh, to, to defend the post, will courts just rubber stamp a default judgment? And those are things that need to be addressed. But I also worry about if something is adjudicated to be illegal and defamatory, basically saying, well, we want to have a law that says the platform should keep it up. Uh, I'm not in favor of notice and takedown. I think that's dangerous. That's effectively the system without Section 230. But once you have an adjudication, that that worries me. So so this isn't the high profile thing uh, that I'm looking at, but I, I, I feel like that is one of the bigger issues that needs to be addressed with Section 230. So we only have time for one more question, uh, and I'll, I'll make it brief. From on a, on a 1 to 10 scale, what do you think the likelihood is that we actually get some kind of meaningful reform to 230 in the next, I don't know, couple of years, with 10 as the most likely? Well, I, I guess it depends on how you define meaningful. I think I think it's ten that we will get reform. <laughs> really, that likely? I don't know whether it will be meaningful or even coherent, but we'll get something. I mean, I, I don't. I, I think there's so much political pressure, uh, and I think that rely just relying on gridlock to stop rushed proposals. I, I don't know if we can rely on that anymore. So, I mean, I, I think it's incredibly likely that something more is going to happen with 230. If you, I, I don't know what, but I, I'm fairly certain something will, there will be a major change. Well, we'll, we'll roll the dice and see where it ends up. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, before books and podcasts are abolished and the First Amendment was rolled back, it was good to talk to you, Jeff. Thanks for coming on. Great talking with you. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth the Lawfare Podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen. Our producer is Jen Patja Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll gain access to an ad-free version of this podcast and weekly events, along with other benefits. As always, thanks for listening.